Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and today's guest is Gudge Ravichandra, who is a recognized high-performance coach and psychologist. He has a wealth of experience looking at resilience and mental toughness, and he's worked with global organizations, government departments, educational institutions, sporting teams, and many others in looking at how to get the best and most out of people, pivoting, changing careers, and the like. So wealth of experience to draw on. I hope you really enjoy this episode because I found it very intriguing especially looking at the different layers of what resilience actually is and how it might play out in different contexts. Enjoy. Gudge, a big thank you and uh, appreciate you coming onto the show today to, to talk about that mental toughness, building resilience space. I know that's, you know, being a fellow psychologist yourself, but also someone with great experience in the space of, you know, performance and, you know, you know, executive delivery in terms of, you know, how to get the most out of teams and, and, you know, our, ourselves and working collaboratively and, and all the other different sort of features of work that you do. It's, you know, it's amazing to have you on the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Nesh. Thank you. Loving what you do, mate, as well. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Look, something that uh, you know is is interesting always for for me is is this space around you know resilience, mental toughness. It's 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 a word that we flick around, we throw around. It's it's fairly poppy. It's catchy these days as well. But in some sense, you know, I've got an idea of what I think it is, but I'm kind of interested in finding out what how you define it or, or, you know, the people that you've worked with, because I know that's a, that's a space you work in a lot. Um, you know, how is this defined? What does it mean? What is it? Yeah, so there's there's seems to be a lot of words around, right? Whenever we do um, these kind of workshops, for example, around resilience and, and, and mental toughness, one of the things that we do is a quick word association exercise, right? And everyone just shouts out the different terms uh, that they come across. So we get words like resilience and grit and, you know, all those kind of things coming up. Um, a sort of stand book, standard sort of textbook definition would be around being able to deal with pressure and challenges regardless of the environmental conditions that you're in, right, and being able to manage that. Um, and I think those kind of, that definition has kind of evolved, particularly over the last 20 years. If you look at the research and, and what's coming out of, particularly out of Europe and the UK and the States, um, where a lot of this research is being driven, we tend to find that it's also not just about persisting and getting things done, but it's also about knowing when to slow down, right? And to kind of appreciate those elements that, you know, we don't have to keep going for this win, win, win every time. And, and mental toughness is not about pushing ourselves to some extreme limit um, to the point of breaking, right? And then magically knowing when you're about to break and then just sort of putting on the handbrake. 
So it's also having those moments. And look, I think the Olympics, you know, that we've just been going through are an amazing um, opportunity for us to see that, whether you are uh, a sports person or not. You know, whether you look at Simone Biles, you look at Naomi Osaka, um, and even if you go back to some of the greats of Michael Jordan, right, in the 1990s, his retirement, where he actually said to us, he gave us the clues around mental health. We didn't necessarily attach it to that, but he he said, um, I just need some time, right? Now, everyone kind of thinks, well, when Michael says, I just need some time, he just wants to go play baseball, right? Um, and that's what everyone considers, but actually... He needed a mental health break. That's what he needed. His father had passed away. He'd kind of won multiple championships. He was lost, right? And, you know, you, we see this all the time. So I think that definition has evolved. And I think it's been changing um, over time. Yeah. It's fascinating because, you know, in so many ways, the word alludes to keep going, mm. fight it through. And, and, and in many ways, it's probably often what, uh, the way that it's used and, and the way that it actually is intended as well. You know, it, it's the resilience of keep going irrespective of what the environment is. Uh, <laughs> and, and in another sense, you know, what you're saying is there might be resilience in, in, in changing path uh, of saying, I'm not going to keep doing that, that that could be resilient because it goes against one's nature. It goes against one, one one's grain, like, like a lot of high achievers, the hardest thing to do is actually to step back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, I was listening to one of your podcasts on um, one of the evolutionary biologists, one of the professors that you interviewed and, you know, that fascinating concept of, um, you know, fight or, or flight. And then having this now, this concept of freezing where you get to take some time to think and reflect. And, you know, that is where real high performance kind of comes from, right? The opportunity that people take a time out, to do those things. Um, and if you imagine back in the days of us being cavemen and cavewomen, you know, running around uh, away from a, uh, you know, some sort of saber-toothed tiger and, and thinking that the only way to get out of this was to just keep running, commit to running, right, rather than getting up a tree, right, or thinking and reflecting. Um, you know, we don't have to go far, right, to kind of come up with different ideas and strategies and see the relevance um, of that. So, yeah, it definitely feels like, we are becoming clearer about, you know, taking that time out and using the opportunities um, around us and, and not just ourselves, but leaning on other people, right? I think that stigma of, you know, I've got to do this myself. You know, a high performer is someone who can rely on themselves to kind of get things done. But history is a great example that actually it starts with you, but you really do need other people around us. We are social creatures and we are interdependent. Um, and so that sense, yeah. Mm. How do we go out and, and, and try and explain something like the Naomi Osaka sort of situation with her sort of stepping, stepping back? And I want to kind of use this as a bit of an exploration because neither of us know. We don't know her. We don't know the actual story. Um, but we're, so we're going to have to make lots and lots of assumptions here. But, but how do we explain it? I mean, to me, uh, looking from the outside, the way that I see it's been um, like the story's been told, and this might not actually be the the true mm. story for Naomi, but at least from us onlookers, it looks like uh, things got too tough 
for her or too difficult, you know, that, that, that she's been under some type of pressure or, or, or she's, she's met some difficulties in life which have got in the way of her being able to, uh, I suppose, do all the elements of what it's, what, what, what's required of you to be a, you know, top-performing tennis player. Um, mm. and, and I suppose the controversy there is, is doing interviews part of being a tennis player um uh irrespective and maybe we can kind of discuss that a little bit further as well but um uh, is is she not resilient enough you know or is this a resilience move how do we unpack that how do we how do we explore that It's it's a it's a good question i don't think she would have achieved the level of success she's had in tennis if she wasn't resilient enough and i think you know probably to get to the point that she's gotten to where millions of aspiring tennis players on a saturday and sunday morning i mean i grew up in in canberra i mean you're there at the moment you know what it's like minus six degrees seven o'clock in the morning um and you know there are lots of people you know aspiring to be where she where she got to so there's an element of you know she's demonstrated that but I think beyond that, you know, there is almost a, a sense of a, a combination of a few things. And this is just my, my sort of analysis on, on this situation, because there are some contradicting factors in her behavior that I find fascinating. So the, the first thing is that um, I don't think there are many athletes that like post-tournament interviews. Uh, most people talk about <laughs> it, <laughs> particularly when you've lost. But I think the idea that, you know, you have to go and after you've just had this massive adrenaline rush, the last thing you want to do is in, sit in front of a bunch of journalists and have to reiterate your story, right, about what you went through and what you were thinking and, and all the rest of it. So I think that's a pretty well standard, accepted kind of process. We even have one from Canberra as well, right? What's that? The yeah, we have a Canberra tennis player that doesn't like that either. Oh <laughs> yeah, I've heard. I've heard. <laughs> and so I, I don't think that uh, Naomi Osaka or Nick are actually alone, right? Uh, in that. Um, but what's interesting is that I mean, she's clearly an introverted individual, right? And so, what do we know about introverts? Well, they draw their energy from within, and so when they're in an environment where they are surrounded by immense noise that takes place. I mean, if you, I'm sure you've been to a, a tennis tournament where you hear the kind of noise that's, that exists. Um, it is draining, right? The pre-match stuff you've got to go through is draining. The, um, then the press conference after is going to be draining, right? Um, now, that is all happening, and it is sucking energy out of an individual. Right? So you see that on one side, and you sort of empathize and, and relate, right, to, to some form that could be hurtful. Yeah. But then you see on the Instagram, Naomi Osaka probably posts a few times a day, right? She's got articles where she's being interviewed by Vogue magazine and various other publications, right? So there are other examples of her actually providing interviews, but perhaps it's happening one-to-one. It's happening on her terms. It's happening in contexts or environments that are completely different, right? And so this sense of even contextualizing um, where uh, we might need to be resilient is really interesting. So for whatever reason, Mm. in our minds, you know, for maybe Naomi's mind, she has contextualized that being in a press conference like that is actually really draining on me, right? And therefore, I don't want to do it. And if, I, if it's going to take away from my performance on the court, 
what is more important is that I deliver because if I don't deliver on the court, no one's going to care about my Instagram feed. No one's going to care about my endorsements. No one's going to come to me and, and provide sponsorship, right? So, you know, there, there is an interesting connection, I think, there around managing energy and knowing when enough is enough. And, and this came up in the Olympics a lot, right, after Simone um, sort of withdrew from some of the tournament there. Can where- you explain who Simone is? Uh, I was going to say for the audience, but probably more so for me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Simone Biles is probably one of the most prolific American gymnasts um, on the planet. In fact, not just American, probably one of the most prolific gymnasts on the planet. In fact, LeBron James, who is probably one of the most well-known NBA players, um, arguably of all time behind Michael Jordan, um, came out a couple of years ago and said that she's probably one of the greatest athletes of all time um, in terms of her sport and just generally her mindset and dominance, right? And so... She came out last week and actually pulled out of some of the events saying that she mentally um, was pushing herself to the edge, right? And so she withdrew and that was massive. That had never happened in the history of um, Simone Biles. People think and associate that kind of level of athlete with that kind of rigidity and toughness, right? In sort of your mindset. Now she did come back and perform in uh, one of the other events, but she took a timeout basically for herself, right? And what she said in, a, in an interview, ironically, a post-game interview, a post-performance interview, was that we almost need to start treating um, these sort of mental health gaps almost like if we had injured our knee, right? No one would be questioning if someone pulled a ligament, right, that you might need to take some time out. In the same way, if you do uh, affect or damage your perception of your mind, and how you treat the situation or the context, taking a time out is probably going to be healthy for you, right? And what we're taught to do is perhaps to persist and to keep going and to push through, right? Now, what happens when someone tears a hamstring, right? You don't just persist. You don't push through. You actually damage it even more, right? And so knowing when to pull back and having the people around you who will also support you um, to do that is really important. And so fortunately, Simone had that level of support as well. Though she was willing to push herself, um, there were people around her who were there to, to help her through that process. So a bit of a tribe, if you like, um, you know, to get her through that. So, yeah, really fascinating, you know, real-time scenarios. What's really interesting for, for, for me is this space around context that you raised as well. And how much that context plays into how these decisions are made. Because you know? like we all, we, we know there's a bit of a pattern and a lot of people have spoken about it where uh, it's a lot harder to stay at number one than it is to get to number one. And, yeah. and, and, yeah. and I'm wondering whether the context of striving and, and trying to reach this, this kind of ultimate pinnacle goal uh, allows us to be more resilient because there's a mental context which says do whatever it takes irrespective like you know yeah. I, I, i'll you know chop off my my, my left arm to, to 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 win so sort of thing but maybe the context changes um you know and, and i don't know the, 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 the this might be uh, a, a controversial concept uh, or it might be just very reasonable but may, maybe it's actually harder to continue to endure 
pain and mm. suffering when you're already there because the luxuries of life are there and you're it, you, it's not going to harm you if you don't mm. you know, participate in something that you're used to you know i mean mm. i i know just aging you know as a kid I, I would do anything and everything and and you know you'd you just say let's go pack up and go to the coast and now you're like no i've got to bring all my luxuries and i've got to make sure everything's perfect and put it all together it becomes a big saga so y'all to hell with it. We're not doing that either. Yeah. It's almost like the resilience has gone out, the more comfortable I get, you know, and, mm. and, and, and maybe that that's what happens in the context of comfort. Um, mm. Maybe there's other contexts that I'm not considering that, you know, I've got a whole lot of other responsibilities, so I don't want any more, but it's, it's yeah. fascinating to look at is any of this driven by, by that context of, um, you know, if, if I've already achieved so much, do I, do I want to put myself through this? So maybe it's not even a question of resilience, but rather a question of do I need to? If life's comfortable enough, I'm not showing up yeah. to the interview. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Just the thought. Yeah, I think, I think it's an it's interesting line of thought there. And I think um, a couple of things come to mind around that context. Um, and, and you would get this all the time in your practice, right, around context being anchors for how we see the world. And the context can really, a bit like us being in a boat, right? Imagine us, you know, though one day we might do this, Nesh, we might actually be able to travel again and be able to go on the Mediterranean and have a yacht there and put an anchor down. And when you do that and you look at the view and it's great, right? It really is amazing and it's exciting and it's wonderful. But day four of seeing the same view, you perhaps want to release that anchor and maybe go around the bay a little bit and, and put the yacht there, right? And kind of enjoy that view for a little while. And I think in a lot of Which ways... Which is fascinating because in yeah. so many ways, if we're just looking at the two photos, they look so similar, right? It's just we, we look for variation, for difference. You know, four days of the same stimulus becomes mm. boring. Yes, absolutely. And, it, and so that context, I think, is interesting. How we set up those anchors in our minds can really change. So for example, aspiring to become the best at what you do, if you want to become the best uh, physician, if you want to become the best psychologist or the best leader and whatever it is, um, that journey of heading towards that path is really interesting. Um, and it, it, I think there's a hunger and an ambition that sits along with that. I suspect that the level of hunger and ambition that is associated with staying at that level, because once you've hit number one, there isn't anywhere higher really to go. I think that changes, right? That flips a switch in our minds because it's no longer about, you know, a path. And, and we are all driven to some extent by some sort of journey, right? Some sort of destination. Um, it's hard to explain to someone the destination is stay where you are right? Don't go, don't go anywhere else, right? Do not drop. I mean, we can't go up. So hit a glass ceiling, but don't go down, right? That is not so inspirational, motivational, I don't think, for someone who has had to demonstrate an immense amount of hunger and ambition all their lives. Right? It's almost counterintuitive to them. And I think a lot of players love the fact um, in some sick way that they might drop from being number one at what they do, because then it gives them another reason to fight back, right? And so you see this all the time. You see that with players coming back from injury. I mean, you don't have to look far, even in tennis, Andy Murray, 
um, for example, you know, the way that he's come back from numerous injuries in his, in his life. Um, and that hunger and ambition to achieve that, uh, you know, is phenomenal. And so, you know, sport is one thing, but we see it all the time in business. We see it um, in our day-to-day lives. We see the single mum who has to fight for her job, who has to look after the kids, who has to manage a household under massive restrictions. Um, you know, we see it all the time around us. And I think um, when we do get to that comfort, I think that word is a really interesting word that you use because comfort triggers so many different emotions, right? The thought of comfort. And so then, as you and I know, that that thought then, you know, those, those feelings then generate a whole bunch of behaviours that we then resonate with. And so, yeah, why do I need to pack those bags for that trip any, anymore? I've already done that. I've been there. Um, I'd rather just put my feet up um, and have a nice beverage, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna enjoy this weekend. So context plays a big role in that. So hunger, um, and I think almost when you change that anchor or that context, it does give us a different perspective. Um, and, and that's been interesting. Kind of like the, the hunger that we have in our, in, in our souls, if I, if I borrow from the analogy of, of you know, parking the boat, and then mm. moving it, you know, I, I might say, I want some pizza tonight, but continued pizza. Um, it's not that I am no longer hungry. I'm just not hungry for pizza. Um, I don't want for, you know, pizza four, four nights in a row. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm hungry for something else. And, and, and maybe that's what assists in, in that resilience of, of being able to change uh, whether it's the anchor in your own mind about what something represents, because mm. potentially you could be doing the same thing, but it's representing something different. Yeah, absolutely. And versus yeah. Have, having to actually change what you're mm. doing. Um, you know, mm. That might be a harder pivot to keep doing the same thing and change it in your mind than, for example, changing jobs and, and feeling like it's fresh and it's new and, and we tell ourselves a narrative that we're learning more or something or other. And you know, maybe sometimes yeah. we are and maybe sometimes we're not. And I think it's an interesting one with our careers, you know, the choices that we make around finding a job, right, and how we go about doing that. And, you know, when I speak to a lot of job seekers, uh, one of the things that I always hear is that, you know, I've missed, I feel like I've missed the boat. I've been, I've gotten comfortable in my job. I know exactly how the organization works. Uh, My brand is already established in this business um, or this government agency or wherever it might be. And therefore, for me to then make that change, there has to be, you know, it requires firstly a massive amount of energy from me to be able to do that. Where else could I park that energy that's going to be helping me and giving me some enjoyment, right? And so without a plan of getting there, it's very difficult to see what the benefit would be of changing jobs, moving into a different agency or a different organization, even moving country, right? Um, And so... You know, that, that sort of calibration almost, right, that needs to take place in our mind um, is interesting. And I, I kind of liken it to, um, I remember I was in Abu Dhabi uh, to watch this uh, particular magician, a guy called David Blaine. I don't know if you've come across David Blaine. He's this master illusionist. You know, he's the guy that hangs up in a box for 24 days, no food, no water, just survives, right? He does these kind of weird kind of escape sort of uh, tricks. Anyway, he was performing... And he came down the stage and he sat down and did this card trick right in front of us, right? And it was phenomenal. I was thinking, I'm never going to be this close to this, an illusionist like this. 
But the greatest illusionist sits up in our heads, right? And they're working 24-7. They're just constantly creating these illusions for us. And we get to pick and choose, actually, what those illusions are, right? Now, some of those illusions can be helpful for us. It gets us in the right mindset and the right frame of mind. Um, others can be disastrous. And, you know, I think we've seen some of that more recently. Um, I don't know if you saw that report from Lifeline Australia a couple of days ago that said they had the busiest day ever in their recorded history, right, of calls, 3,400 calls in a day. And so there's a lot of people right now that need an, an ability to be able to, to help them with their mindset, right? Um, I don't think there's been a busier time for psychologists, Nesh. I'd imagine you're pretty busy at the moment. Yeah, just a touch, <laughs> just a touch. I'll tell you what, though, like everyone says you guys must be very busy. I think the truth is uh, psychology has had a shortage for a long time, so it actually doesn't change it as a mm. psychologist. It just changed the number of calls and the number of people we have on our waiting list because uh, we, we're just not able to physically see more people. Um, yes. So, you know, interesting for us, no change. Uh, but mm. for the community, extreme change, you know, the, yeah. that uh, they can't be seen, um, certainly not in any reasonable time. Um, mm. So they're left to, 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 to look at other avenues. Mm. And I, I think it's a real, uh, you know, problem on a, on a societal sort of perspective and, and a global perspective because, you know, we're not, we're not alone um, in, in that either where, where do people go out and get that that support? You know, I mean, mm. and really, I mean, if if, if we're going to be reasonable and and and, and honest and and uh, uh, you know look at it, uh, I think in a conscious way, we shouldn't be just looking at how to work in our mindset with professionals. You know, psychologists should not be placed on a pedestal or psychiatry or GPs or medication or anything. You know, they are one part of a very complex thing called, you know, our mental states or our psyche or our, our beliefs and so on and so forth. And, and uh, yes, they're, you know, we're, we're, we're uh, uh, valuable in what we do, um, but we can't, we can't um, be dependent on it either mm. because in, in situations like this where you can't see a, a specific professional or in other situations where maybe you do become dependent on, on, on your psychologist and I know that, you know, we work very, very hard to, to stop that from occurring um, <laughs> uh, because it's, it's, it's a natural thing to, to, to happen as well. But uh, yeah, we are, we're, we're busy, we're busy, but um, mm. this hasn't changed it. You know, unfortunately it's just the communities in a, in, in a world hurt with, with um, mm. you know, obviously the, COVID lockdowns and, and what that means for people's livelihoods and, and contact and, um, you know, sense of belonging and connection and, and you know, mm. all the numerous things that I can't even begin to even conceive where, you know, where, what, what problems come from, from this. Absolutely. And there's a lot of things I think over the next, you know, sort of two to five years we're going to see surfacing, right, you know, through this. And, you know, it's interesting you're mentioning about, our sort of mindset becoming, you know, interdependent on this system or, or, or you know, a collective of, of approaches, right, that help us as individuals. And I've been playing around with this idea of this self map, right? You know, the idea that, you know, you might have this um, sort of view, you know, each of us have a view of ourselves, right, and how we operate. 
And it is obviously constructed of, you know, some core things that are important to us. And this pandemic, I think, has really brought out um, a number of interesting um, observations. And I'll give you one in particular that I find fascinating, which is how we have interchanged isolation with loneliness, right? And the idea that if you are isolated, that you are therefore lonely. And that is simply not true, right? And so in our minds, we have equated those two things. You know, there's a, a belief that if I'm locked away and I can't get out of my house and have that freedom to do the things that I want to do, that I'm, that I'm lonely. Now, you and I know that there are lots of people out there sometimes who go to the extreme and even take their own lives who will actually talk about their sense of loneliness. And they are some of the most charismatic, gregarious, extroverted individuals who are constantly surrounded by people. Right. And so those two things are completely separate entities. But for whatever reason, we have managed to focus on one particular part of our value set, exaggerated that so that that then becomes a threat to our entire self identity. Right. And so it's almost breaking down some of these things in our own minds to say, well, what is actually the problem? Okay. I'm, I'm in my house. I'm feeling lonely, right? What can I do, right, to kind of do that? In sports psychology, we call it controlling the controllables, right? What is in my control that I can actually exert some influence over? Can I get onto a WhatsApp video chat? Can I, you know, start actually interacting more with my family or my friends or other people? Um, you know, can I talk across the fence to my neighbor, right, and set up a chat, right? What are the things that are possible um, that, are, that we can do? And that level of independence, um, you know, is really critical. And so when we sort of look at frameworks around mental toughness and resilience, that life control, we call it life control, am I the driver of my destiny or am I the passenger, right? That sort of reminder um, you know, is so important. Um, Nesh, I can tell you, um, there's not a day that goes by that I don't remind myself of this, right? I mean, we run a business where we've got different projects happening in different countries. Inevitably, something's not going well, right? Something's going to go off, right? Clients want more. Um, an associate wasn't able to deliver on time. Um, there is something happening, right? And there are a lot of things out of my control, as there are for a lot of us. And if I was to focus on those things, it would truly be devastating, right? Um, and so I've had to come up with my own system, right, of being able to deal with this, which was literally to have a mantra of what is in my control. What can I do about this? I can't control the economy. I can't control the spread of the COVID Delta virus. I can't um, dictate policy to Scott Morrison about what should be happening around vaccination protocol, right? What I can do is a whole bunch of other things. And as a result of that, and I think people who tend to perform at higher levels, there is a very consistent thread around the choice of that mindset, right? And, you know, it's, it's not an accident that people who perform at higher levels consistently do this more than other people. Um, and in fact, you know, there's one, one thing that yeah. I would add, sorry, Gudge, to, to, mm. to, to jump in. One thing I would add there is... In listening to you talk about that, this isn't something that you know on a rational front. Mm. 
this is something that you have adopted as a part of your fabric. You know, there, there's a there's a belief, uh, a a you know, almost like a blind faith in that. You know, and and mm. trying to use different different words to kind of say it's fully immersed in, in yeah. that. And because of that immersion, mm. it's not a theoretical idea. It's something mm. you just know. And, mm. and, 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 and that knowingness kind of allows you to say, go back to what you can control, you know, that yeah. high internal um, locus of control. And that allows you to just pivot, so to speak, or whatever language. Um, and so whatever comes your way, I suppose your radar, your mental sort of um, uh, lens goes out and says, I'm not going to see the, negative of it I'll, I'll look for the solution which is the control I'll, I'll, you know there's always something you can control there's almost like the, the belief what can i control how can we fix this how can we prevent this from happening again so on and so forth it's, it's kind of in your nature um is this a nature well, maybe nature's not the right word is, is this something that you have to work on or, or is it part of your nature is it you know part of the high conscientiousness or or yeah. you know with, with, with some other features <laughs> yeah. um yeah, I think I'm glad you used the word features as opposed to other things. But um, <laughs> I think um, it definitely wasn't uh, something I was born with. This wasn't my natural style by no stretch of the imagination. In fact, I, I would say I'm, I'm quite naturally an anxious individual and I've had to teach myself, right, how to manage that anxiety in a way that was going to be helpful and healthy for me. Because I could see that in a lot of ways earlier on in my life, it was very unhealthy. And so as a result of that, you know, whether it was growing up and having these imposter experiences in, in different things, being given roles when I was young that I felt I was too young for, right? And why are people trusting in me, you know, to do this? And I've got to get up in front of 300 CEOs and have this conversation. They're all 25 years older than me. What am I going to tell them, right? Um, that still happens, Right. In fact, what I tell myself is I'm glad that it happens because it keeps me honest. It keeps me grounded. It keeps me working harder, right? Because there are things that I then need to do to lift my game, right? So that people who do have an experience with me or with people in my team, um, they get something positive out of that, right? And so, you know, turning that around, in fact, I was in a, um, I was in a class, this is a couple of years ago now, um, a year two class listening to a teacher, um, you know, getting a bunch of kids to stand up and do a little mini presentation, right? And they had this beautiful way of explaining how to turn these kids and their anxiety as they were getting up and speaking um, into something really positive. And so the teacher, you know, this, this child, you know, was about seven or eight years old, stood up and was shaking. I mean, the, the paper they were holding was just shaking. And the teacher said to them, um, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm really, I'm scared. Right? I said, oh, what are you feeling? I said, well, I've got all these butterflies that are going crazy in my stomach. Right? That's how I feel. And the teacher said, well, what if those butterflies were flying in a pattern that you could see? Right? How would that make you feel? And so after a few minutes, the, you know, the child went and sat down and then came back up again. And it was amazing to see that transition. It was in a couple of minutes, Nesh. Um, and to see a bit of a smile come through this child's face who was previously horrified at having to do this. 
Now, that simple connection between our mind and body that can dictate how we behave um, was so powerful. And I think it's something that we're getting better at teaching in our schools. I know that mental health is something that, you know, we're talking about a lot at the moment um, in, in different schools. But that's something that, you know, we forget in moments of chaos and anxiety, right? That, you know, we are in a position to be able to do this. Um, and I find that fascinating, that for whatever reason, the ability for us to control goes into a black hole. You know, what is it about that situation where we forget that we are actually also an active participant in all of this, right? mm. not a victim of what is happening to our context or situation. And so, you know, I see this all the time with people who lose their jobs. You know, um, how I started off as a psych was actually um, going and helping organizations to have the uh, redundancy question, uh, interviews and conversations, right? It was the, um, the ugly version of the George Clooney and up in the air, right? That was my job. And part of that was really about, you know, how do you take someone from arguably their lowest point in their professional career to be able to think positively and have a plan about where they're going to go? And, you know, I've been doing that for the last 20 years, and I can tell you, um, it's not an accident that the people who tend to find jobs um, that they want to be in and at a faster rate, right, a more efficient rate, are the ones that commit to the process, right, in a, in a complete way. They have a positive mindset around the things that they want to try. They, they try new things. They're willing to take risks. They're willing to try and expand their network and have uncomfortable conversations, right, with people. Um, they are more willing to accept that they are in control of their destiny and that the employment uh, market and, and the fact that we're in a COVID state is not uh, the, the dictator for that. And also that they believe in themselves, right? And, and for me, that confidence is one of the, the biggest factors, right? And, you know, using facts to remind ourselves of what is actually happening. Um, we can very easily just divert back to feelings as opposed to going back to our thoughts. And, and what we think about situations. So, um, and it's not an accident that people who embrace those concepts tend to find work faster and also have much more success in terms of the opportunities and the time frame in which they find those jobs. Right? Yeah. It's interesting because sometimes you know we we might misunderstand resilience in in mm. looking at an example like that, where we might say the person who transitions quicker and faster is is more resilient um yet it might be just their nature that they mm. kind of look at it and maybe that is a part of resilience the, the other side of me kind of thinks about how you how you defined it earlier in our conversation about you know continuing to do those you know things that are important irrespective of the environment something like that mm. um, yeah, apologies yeah. if i've poorly <laughs> re, re, you know right. re, rephrased what, what, what you what you said there could be the other person who, who is really up against it, that it, it, it's not their skill set to go out and, you know, stand up in front of the classroom and, 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 and tell their story and present. Mm -hmm. It's not their skill set to go out and contact people and ask for a job and do some networking and kind of, uh, uh, you know, embrace the, the change, but resilience in, in, in you know, could be about how someone transitions irrespective of what their 
they're facing. Um, just for some, they don't need much resilience because it's kind of easy for them. They're like, oh, well, this place is, you know, probably come to, to an end for me anyway. They come up with some sort of narrative as to why, you know, it's time for them to move on. And they're like, yeah, fresh new start. Um, you know, have a, have a chat with their, their, their partner when they get home and they kind of are not, not too phased. They're like, this is actually pretty good. You don't get a redundancy too often. I'll get my package and da, 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 da. And yeah, I'll take some time off. I'll spend time with the kids and go on a holiday. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. As with someone else, got to do some heavy lifting at that point, where where it feels like their world has 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 fallen apart, um, mm. or they actually need to do some incredible, you know, serious retraining, and it's you know, and they have to put in a huge volume of effort uh, to be mm. able to be reinstated in in in, in a you know, like for like job. Um, you know, uh, you know. Lots of different contexts, but um, or, or scenarios, but uh, yeah, it kind of dawned on me that it kind of almost feels like one person's more resilient, but are they? Um, yeah. Or is it just or maybe is, is resilience a capacity to just cope with adversity? Yeah, and maybe because if we keep thinking about resilience as an outcome, that's not really no. what resilience is, right? It's the journey that you take to get there and it's the steps that you take and it's the narrative that you tell yourself, right? You're, you're absolutely right. It's the, you know, we are master storytellers and we're constantly telling ourselves stories. Sometimes they're horror, horror you know, scripts and sometimes they're romantic and sometimes they're comedies and whatever, right? So I completely agree with you that I think it's, it, it is more journey related. Um, you know, when you think about that resilience path, it is, for me, that resilience journey is not just about, um, you know, dealing with that adversity. It's also about what you choose to do next, right? Now, all of us can do something next, right? And that next doesn't need to be, I'm going to go to work tomorrow and resign and take three months off, right? It could be for some people, right? That's something that they want to do, right? For others, it might be, I need to you know, actually go through a process of starting with two of my best mates. I'm going to talk to them about the fact that I'm thinking about leaving and I'm going to ask them to introduce me to two people. That's it. So it's a warm lead, right? It's not even I'm going to go and meet new people that I've never spoken to before. So it's thinking through what am I going to do next that is actually going to be healthy and helpful for me on this path? Because we can all do that, right? Some of it will be micro steps and that's okay right? It, it's, it's going in a positive direction. And I, and I think for each of us, we do have to understand that journey for ourselves. And I, I find one of the, yeah. So just jumping in, is it maybe also an element of how we might gauge who's more resilient, who's less resilient is almost like how much someone is affected by how much they care. Like it yeah. would look to me like, you know, uh, scenario a someone is made redundant and they don't care and so mm. they walk through that passage of time you know which might be you know six weeks by the time they find their next job 12 weeks with mm. very little pain uh, you know uh, well not very little but certainly much 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 less pain and hurt um, and care mm. and the person who's less resilient might still have the exact same outcome they have they, they get another job in 12 weeks time but they go through hell you know, yeah. they don't sleep well they're they're stressed they're uh you know uh disengaging from others they're withdrawing maybe having more disputes they're they're kind of worried they're ruminating mm. uh, maybe 
resilience, just sort of talking it through, it popped up for me is, is about how much someone cares, how much they're affected, um, you know, that whatever their, their, their mental narrative is, one is like, ah, she'll be right, you know, that, that yeah. kind of Aussie slang sort of, uh, she'll be right, um, yeah. versus the, oh, my God, you know, how, how could they do, they, they, they do this to me and, and kind of be stuck in that space for an extended period of time and, and feeling unfair and hurt and all the other yes. reasonable things as well, but, but maybe show less resilience. So I think, yeah, it, it's an interesting point. And what does the research tell, tell us, right? So the research tells us that the, the individuals that choose the narrative, right, that is actually helpful to move one step forward uh, are better off, right? So if we choose the narrative that this is painful, that this is going to be torture, this is going to be taking me into a place that is unhealthy for me, right? Absolutely, that journey is not going to be worth taking. And so every day is painful. But the individuals that construct a narrative that is actually positively focused, right? That is achievable in their minds, that results in them also understanding, and I think resilience, this is a big part of resilience that is coming through now in the research, is around the support network that you create around you, right? The idea that you do have people there to help you on this journey, that you are not doing this on your own, right? This is so critical as well. So I think there's, there's that element, absolutely. The other part, which I think you were kind of alluding to there, is also this sense of um, comparison, right and looking at other people and and that being a benchmark for you i think single-handedly nesh this is one of the worst things that we can be doing to ourselves when we look at other people and we compare ourselves to them you know why did they move through that so quickly how come they're so happy going through this um that creates a massive amount of discrepancy and um destabilizing right in our own minds and that as we all know, with anything that creates instability, um, can lead to you always a, come up inferior because you can always find someone who's doing it better than you are. Yeah, yeah, and and the idea of of comparing means that someone is losing in that comparison. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so yes. either we are happy because we've been beating them, or we are happy or we are sad because they're better than us, right? It's and if a you're win winning lose. today. Tomorrow you'll be losing. So, you know, it, it, that, that, that's the lure that, that you grab it when it's feeling good, but you don't realise what you're grabbing is future pain. Yes. And so that is, you know, a fundamental part of all of this, which means, okay, if that is not going to be necessarily so healthy for me, then I have to travel inward, right, to be able to have this journey. And so that means what am I managing in my thoughts, which are affecting the feelings and then the behaviour, right? So what am I going to tell myself? What's the story and the narrative that I want to tell myself every day when I wake up, right? And so this is where the idea of gratitude and mindfulness and all of these things, you know, resonate with people, right? Because it is an inward journey, you know, around that. Because comparison is exceptionally unhealthy. We know this. Mm. Um, but we do it because we think we're playing some sort of game or a competition. And so as a result of that, the rules are that I have to beat somebody. Well, that's really not the rules anymore. That's not how the world operates in the way that we think about things. Even if we look at the world of work and the way that we're moving from this you know, gig economy into this fractional employment, right? the idea that you know, over the next five to 10 years, employers are probably going to be not advertising permanent full-time positions as much, right? So this is a big mindset shift for people, 
that we are going to have to think about the idea that there are probably going to be multiple part-time jobs that we might need to take on. And that's going to be potentially how we all operate, right? It's, it's taking the gig economy to another level of, of, um, uh, of outcome, right? Now, we're seeing this in the US already, right? That employers have realized that oh, if we're going to be working from home or if we're going to be, you know, I can be employing someone based out of the Philippines or India or um, somewhere else to do this job and they can do it part-time for me, I don't necessarily need to have a full-time headcount sitting in this country, right? And so it is connecting the world, but it is also creating some complications for people who want immense stability and permanence, right, in their lives. Now, if those contexts are changing around us, and that is out of our control in lots of ways, we go back to what's in our control, right? And so is it about how do I equip myself with the skills to be a, an attractive brand to employers, right? So if I know that I've got to have two or three gigs that I've got to be working on over the next five to 10 years or working towards that, um, maybe I need to become less reliant on my current permanent role that I'm, that I'm thinking about because the employer might turn around and say to me one day, actually, you know, I think that um, this role is probably part-time, right? And we can probably get this done part-time working from home somewhere, right? And so there's all of that that then impacts people's mindset as well. Um, and it creates, should create more independence in ourselves, right? That we need to go out and, and, and find these opportunities and, and do this. Now, that is a completely different skill set that we need to be creating in ourselves, right? Um, so it's interesting to see how we're going to be migrating and transitioning you know, towards that. But it all starts with the story that we tell ourselves. You know, what is that narrative? Is, is, is that also maybe a feature of when there is enough supply mm. of work out there that there's greater selectiveness so you can pick, you know, do a few days here. I mean, psychology is very much in this space at the moment where yeah. you know, there's certainly not enough graduates coming out. Um, mm -hmm. And so you see much, you know, many more psychologists doing part-time roles, you know, rather than, you know, your, your full-time um, roles. And I don't know if that's across the board everywhere, but it certainly has been what I've observed. Um, is that a feature of abundance or, you know, that, 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 there's, there's so much available, so we can kind of pick and choose. Is it, is, is it um, an economic thing that if you're getting paid well enough, you don't necessarily have to do, do uh, you know, full-time load? Or maybe there's people who are doing two, two part-time jobs that equates to more than a full-time role. I mean, I don't know what the data is out, <laughs> out there, but uh, yeah. you know, what, what do you see here, here in Australia and, and you know, uh, or even in other countries, how are you seeing that sort of space? Well, we're definitely seeing a shift away from uh, that sense of permanency. Uh, and I think organisations, I mean, even if you took a purely economic view on this, right, the idea that you would have to be um, fixed on one employee to do a job and that they are fully utilised right, all the time to be able to do that, and particularly if they're working from home, 
right? Where all of a sudden an employer, and we, we've heard some of the investment banks, you know, coming out over the last few months saying everyone needs to be back in the office. Right? They can't handle a world where they are not in control, right, of their employees, right? And, you know, when that happens um, and you don't necessarily have control over employees, you don't know what everyone's doing. As long as the output is the same, well, do we need to pay someone full-time to do that? Maybe we could pay them part-time to get the same output, right? So these okay. pressures that are happening from an economic perspective, but there's also this sense of, I mean, the, the statistics on the amount of graduates who are not choosing to go into the corporate world over the last five years is staggering. We've seen a 25% increase, right, in graduates choosing to go down the entrepreneurial path right, rather than going wow. into graduate positions. This is globally, this is happening, right? That is significant. That means there is the compelling case, right, for employers to offer these graduate programs to say, come and work for us. We're going to teach you how to be the best graduate that you can be and the best employee of ours is not compelling enough, right? It means that individuals and you know, young graduates are probably finding that what they're learning from being an entrepreneur or joining a young startup or whatever it might be is so much more enriching, right, to their skill set. gives them more flexibility, perhaps, right, to choose other ventures and other things. That sense of autonomy, that sense of creativity that we are tapping into, um, we've never had this in the history of mankind, right, these kind of opportunities. So it is all new, but the research mm. is clear. And the fact that, you know, graduates are deselecting out of that traditional process is a very good indication that the market is shifting. Right. Yeah. It poses a different question, I suppose, of the resilience of what companies need to do, that the old model of, you know, having a graduate program uh, is, as you say, not compelling enough, you know, that, that it's not stimulating enough, it doesn't provide, you know, whatever it is that, that graduates are looking for in whatever industry that, that, that we're talking about, it's, it, it needs to capture them um, and give them more, more juice that, you know, that's, that, that's what we're kind of looking for. Um, mm. It's very, very fascinating to, to kind of see, because that, that taps into our resilience as well about, you know, yeah. uh, what am I willing to ask for? What do I want and how willing am I to, to, you know, punt or take a risk? Do I see it as a risk or not? Um, mm. Uh, you know, what other luxuries have I got, you know, uh, around, do I have those responsibilities that I've got, I've got to carry that make maybe makes me less resilient to change. Yes. You know, yeah. So, so, so much complexity uh, in that mm. space. In that space. And uh, the conversations that you and I might've had growing up um, around, you know, um, getting a house and having a mortgage, right. Um, getting married and having kids, um, doing all these things doesn't seem to come up as often as early as it did for us. I mean, this is just a, this is not, we're not talking about a hundred year time difference here. We're talking about 15 to 20 years, right? That things have shifted so much that the priorities of people um, aren't necessarily the same anymore. Uh, and I'm talking you know, obviously generally, right? I mean, so this is a, a bit of a general of thing. Course. But as a result of that, um, employers also need to attune to the fact that, well, if we want to give our young talent more freedom and flexibility, how could we set up the structures so that, you know what, we're going to hire you part-time. You can go and do whatever else you want, but we want you for 25 hours a week, right? 
because we want your brilliance, we want your creativity, we want your dynamism in this firm, right? But we also appreciate that you don't want to just give it to one party, right? There's going to be other people involved. What an attractive proposition that would be to a bunch of young people who are not thinking about, I need to get money together for a deposit on a house, right, to buy a mortgage. I want to be free to make those choices, right? Um, so I think employers also gearing themselves up around that shift um, is really interesting and in how they do that over the next five to 10 years is going to be critical. Mm-hmm. Maybe younger people are getting more resilient because they just don't care about that. I'll, I'll deal with that later when, when yeah. I need to. I'm not concerned, you know, that yeah. uh, uh, I'm, I'm not dependent and I can hold that, you know, really loosely and lightly in my head. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful way to, to, to be thinking, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, oh, absolutely. You know, an older person might say, yeah, yeah, but you need to do your responsibilities. And maybe a younger person says, Hey, I'll get there. You know, <laughs> I will do it. But probably not of, right of, now. Of lives. We're, we're getting, you know, lifespans getting older and older for every two years that passes, I believe we're, we're, we're adding a year of, uh, of, um, you know, aging. So, uh, well, extending our, our, our lifespan globally. So, um, you know, maybe that comes with it comes with it too yeah absolutely i get reminded by my uh, my girls all the time you know they're 15 and 12 about how old i actually am right and particularly in my mindset and around the freedom that you know they want to have so i think it's fascinating and again it's the narrative right we go back to the storytelling in our minds yeah <laughs> where can people find out more about the the, the work you do and and uh, also, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, you know your your workplace, and I know that you're you're currently in Sydney, but there's there's uh, you know office in in Dubai as well. Tell us a little bit about that space and where people can connect with you, find out more about you, and and reach out. Yeah, sure. Um, so we set up a business um, in 2013. This is called Compass that uh, was headquartered out of Dubai. Uh, Dubai, geographically, for those of you who've been there, you know it's a wonderful place to access different parts of the world. Uh, And so we focus on career, leadership, and performance. They're the the three core elements of of what we we do, individuals, but also in teams um, and organizations. Uh, We do some work with sporting teams and athletes uh, as well, but also with business schools, so executive MBA and and MBA um, businesses. And resilience and mental toughness cuts across all of those areas, right? So that's the beauty of, of that, uh, that work, that, you know, all of us need those core skills and, 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 and the perspective on, on life around those concepts to help us to be able to achieve. And so um, actually this time last year, we created a virtual product um, to kind of help people around the career side because we realised you know, we were seeing some statistics coming out of the amount of millions of people um, losing their jobs through what was happening. And so we decided to create this program called Kickstarter. Um, and that is a, a series of, you know, eight videos, four hours in length, that basically give you the tools, sample CVs, interview guides, negotiations, you know, salary negotiation techniques um, to help people um, to be able to deal with, you know, either finding a new job because you might be out of a job or if you wanted to transition right into a new role. Um, so whether you're a graduate all the way through to senior ranks, um, the tools and techniques in there, um, we've used with uh, tens of thousands of people around the world um, to help them to make those transitions. Um, and so I think, you know, all of us are trying to do things, you know, to help. In fact, we've given that product, um, if anyone there is a veteran, 
um, it is free for you, right, to access. Um, and so you can simply um, find me on either LinkedIn or Instagram. I think I have to be on Instagram these days, otherwise I'm irrelevant, supposedly, I'm being told. Um, and uh, or through our website at uh, compass with a K, compassconsultancy.com. Um, and, you know, we're very happy to support and, and help people any way we can. That's why we set this, this firm up. Mm. It's fantastic. I think, you know, this, this word of, of, of resilience is so important for individuals, for groups, for organisations, just to have the conversation. Uh, I think we, we often are so narrow-minded of just thinking this is what it is, you know, or this is what it is, and, you know, it's about just hardening up and, you know, just shut up and get on with it and, you know, or, or whatever it might be, or it's, it's, it's these judgments between comparisons and, and, and mm. you know, that, that person's resilient versus that person's not. And I think, you know, this conversation has certainly opened up for, for me how many layers and, and, and contextual uh, features we've got to consider in, in trying to understand what it is. And, and mm-hmm. I, I feel I'm, I'm, yeah, I have much more clarity and confusion now after this that, that, <laughs> that it poses you know, just as many questions as, as, as we've kind of um, maybe explored and, and yeah. I won't say solved, but uh, you know, uh, explored and, and, and dab, dabbled around in, but I think to be able to do that on, a, on an organizational front would be amazing because you know, it, it means different things for different people. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily just mean the traditional way that resilience might be considered. Um, so, you know, it's been extremely insightful for me and I'd encourage, you know, everyone to, to everyone listening who thinks they could benefit from those conversations further exploration on a personal or you know professional front organizational front to to um you know go to the website have a look around you know but but look look at any level um and and see how it applies because these conversations have to keep going you know that's the way to to um you know keep keep our eye on the ball as well you know because we just keep discovering i'm sure you're uh you know learning all the time as well, just because you're in it and, and thinking about it and, and uh, you know, hence, hence, you know, big, big appreciation for you coming onto the show and, uh, you know, giving us a bit of insight in that space as well. Thank you, Nesh. I mean, really love what you do, mate, and, and bringing these conversations to people um, and, you know, people need them right now more than ever. And I think this is so critical that we can just tap these kind of conversations in, you know, with a couple of taps and, and we're into some knowledge and I think you're right. We've opened up um, probably some questions that hopefully um, you know, we get to think about and talk about publicly with people um, much more freely than we might have in the past. And, and it becomes acceptable for us you know, to have these discussions. And it's not a sign of weakness right, to have that. And I think that that's so important as well. Yeah. I'm reading a book at the moment called, I think it's called The Fearless Organisation. Right. Uh, and and it, it's really about just, people a cultural sort of feel of of people feeling not afraid to raise these things not 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 mm-hmm. afraid to talk about these the you know their own personal you know lives matters you know com- complexities in the workplace why a deadline hasn't been you know met it's it's just having mm-hmm. frank conversations but without fear mm-hmm. um, and, and, and resilience sort of come comes to mind you know in that is that resilience you know is also the 
confidence one has to, to go out and maybe reach out to an organization like yours and, and, and say, you know, this isn't a, uh, a criticism on ourselves. This is actually us wanting to learn more and, 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 and mm. um, understand this space better and maybe integrate some things. So, you know, I hope mm. we've started that conversation for, for our listeners and, and you know, continue to explore that for, for ourselves as well. And, and um, yeah, once again, appreciate you coming onto the show and, you know, offering your expertise and, and, and knowledge. Thank you, Nesh. Appreciate it, mate. And, uh, yeah, hope to catch up again soon, maybe in person. Well, look, I'll tell you what, when they, when these uh, lockdowns, you know, end, maybe <laughs> maybe I'll come up to Sydney or you come down to Canberra and uh, maybe I'll come up. It's a bit warmer. Uh, we'll have a coffee. Yeah. That'll be great. Thanks, mate. See ya. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe. Share it via social media and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.